Hello and welcome to our SDPA digital presentation, Skin Cancer in the Immunosuppressed Patient. Our presenter, Cynthia Griffith, is a dermatology physician assistant at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and earned her Master's of Physician Assistant Studies from UT Southwestern Medical Center. Cynthia is the co-creator of a high-risk skin cancer transplant clinic for patients who are immunosuppressed after solid organ or bone marrow transplant. She also practices general adult medical dermatology. Cynthia has been the ground rounds editor for the Journal of Dermatology Physician Assistance, JDPA, and is a guest lecturer in the UT Southwestern PA program and a lecturer at local, regional, and national conferences. Please welcome Cynthia Griffith. Hi, my name is Cynthia Griffith, and I'm here to discuss skin cancer in the immunosuppressed patient. Thanks for joining me. I have no relevant disclosures or conflicts of interest. So we're going to talk today about uh, rates of skin cancer in the immunosuppressed population. We're going to talk about uh, the aggressiveness of these tumors and how they result in increased mortality for this population. We're also going to discuss independent patient risk factors like medications, um, occupation history, uh, previous history of skin cancer that increase non-melanoma skin cancer risk. We're going to talk about treatments and recent developments in the management of field cancerization and skin cancer treatment. And we're going to talk about recommendations for screening of these patients. An intact immune system protects people, patients, humans against malignancy. So we have the innate and the adaptive immune system. Macrophages, um, part of the innate or nonspecific immune system, are cells that phagocytose or eat up cell debris and also foreign substances and cancer cells. Natural killer cells are, are nonspecific and they kill cells that, that have lost their MHC or self-indicating complex. And then cytotoxic T cells, part of the specific immune system or adaptive immune system, they are cells that protect us against errors or problems that develop within the cells. Um, MH, MHC1 complex binds to these um, wrongly made proteins and presents them to the outside of the cell, marking them for destruction by the cytotoxic T cells. So anything in the body that decreases, or anything like medications um, that decreases the num any one of these components is going to allow cancer to proliferate. As we know, UV exposure over time damages DNA. This results in mutations. These mutations over time turn into malignant transformation. So in our immunosuppressed patients, these parts of the immune system, the um, not natural killer cells, the macrophages, the cytotoxic T cells, they don't come in and fix uh, these these DNA mutations that translate into malignant transformation like they would in a normal healthy person. So that's why in this patient population, there is more likelihood for UV exposure to result in malignant transformation. 
when we talk about immunosuppression in this talk, we're talking about people that have had a solid organ transplant, heart, lung, kidney, liver. We've, we're talking about people that have stem cell transplants for um, uh, leukemias and lymphomas. We're talking about HIV and AIDS patients. We're talking about um, anyone that has a blood dyscrasia. So at baseline, they have a deficit in their immune system. Anybody that's on a medication, um, and we'll talk about these more in depth later, that acts on the immune system in some way. So we know that the rates of skin cancer in HIV patients is increased. It's increased at about three to six, 3.6 times in men and about two times in women. And if people are on antiretroviral therapy, then their, their immune systems are more robust and they actually have a lower risk for making skin cancer. This picture here is a picture of a pigmented BCC. In situ and then under a dermatoscope. So we also know that people that have had hematopoietic cell transplants and people that have chronic lymphocytic leukemia have increased rates of non-melanoma skin cancer. It is the second most common primary malignancy in CLL patients. Um, also, they have a higher than average cumulative incidence of basal cell and squamous cell over time after their CLL diagnosis. This patient population also has an increased risk of melanoma. So patients are found to have about a three to eight time relative risk increase compared to the general population um, if they have CLL. We know that in the solid organ transplant population, they are 16 times more likely to make basal cell carcinomas uh, 65 to 200 times more likely to make squamous cell carcinomas, and then two to three times more likely to make melanoma in this um, population of people that have had solid organ transplants. We also know that the post-transplant incidence of melanoma appears to be increasing over time. So it was previously published that melanoma is two to three times more likely in this population, but a recent JAMA dermatology study found that in kidney transplant patients, there's actually a five times increased risk. So while the rates of non-melanoma skin cancer tend to be stable since 1991, the rates of post-transplant melanoma tend to be increasing over the past decade. When are these patients going to develop these additional types of cancer? So it tends to be that the risk for development of melanoma is about one to four years after a stem cell transplant. The risk of squamous cell carcinoma is two to seven years. And for basal cell carcinoma, it's about seven to nine years. So we're talking in the years after they have, to, they have had their intervention. It's important to note and kind of counsel your patients and think about that because they may be seeing their, um, they may be well, they may be seeing their um, transplant physicians less and they may need to be seeing 
us in dermatology more in the years after their transplant. Not only are the rates of cancer higher in this population, there's also evidence that these cancers are more aggressive and result in death um, and increased mortality in this patient population. Um, a study out of Australia found that there were that CLL patients had a 17-fold increase for, for mortality over the general population with regards to non-melanoma skin cancer, mainly SCC. Um, they also, their squamous cell carcinomas are more likely to locally recur, more likely to metastasize, and more likely to result in death. And then this, another study from Australia also found that death from cancer represents 65% of the mortality amongst this CLL cohort that they were following. So lung cancer and skin cancer were the, were the greatest cancer mortality in that population. A study in the United States found that U.S. organ transplant recipients had a nine times higher risk of death than the general population um, from skin cancer. What are the risk factors for these patients to develop skin cancer? So we're, we're the same study found that typically it's white males who have had a heart or lung transplant and are over the age of 50. Additional risk factors are if they've had skin cancer prior to their transplant, if they have an increase in immunosuppression, like for an organ rejection episode, um, if they have had in the past outdoor occupations like ranching or farming or an outdoor hobby like marathon running um, or related to the duration of immunosuppression medications. So if they have been cumulative dose tends to confer a greater risk for development of skin cancer. Also heart and lung recipients tend to have a greater risk than kidney or liver recipients due to the higher doses and the more intense anti-rejection regimens that these patients are subjected to. We also know from a recent study that's come out that there are racial differences in skin cancer in the organ transplant recipient. So we know that African-American organ transplant recipients tend to have skin cancer in sun protected areas and the lesions might be positive for HPV or the patient might have a history of warts where they found that Asian organ transplant recipients have skin cancer in sun-exposed areas, and they may have had a history of living um, or immigrating from an equatorial region. So these are just important distinctions when you're treating skin of color uh, in, and skin cancer in the organ transplant recipient. So what are risk factors for recurrence or high-risk lesions um, for increased rates of metastasis um, when you're talking about squamous cell. So we know that it's large size, so greater than two centimeters, on the head and neck. So the eyes are around the, the ears, the lip, the scalp, the temples, um, those are all high risk areas that are more likely to recur or metastasize. 
um, tumor depth greater than two millimeters, um, previous history of recurrence, a poorly differentiated tumor evident on the pathology report, or paraneural invasion evident in the pathology report or in the Mohs excision. So any of these risk factors tend to um, predispose or, or let you know that this is more of a high-risk lesion. It's going to be more likely to recur um, or result in metastasis in the organ transplant recipient. So just a couple words about what a transplant regimen looks like. Um, they're on three, typically three medications. They're typically on prednisone. Uh, they're on a calcineurin inhibitor, so like tacrolimus or cyclosporin. And they're on an anti-metabolite like azathioprine or mycophenolate. So they're on either one um, azathioprine or mycophenolate, and then they're on either one cyclosporin or tacrolimus. They're on three drugs typically during their um, to suppress their immune system. So we know that azathioprine confers an increased risk of squamous cell carcinoma and melanoma. Um, this is a medication that, that not only is used in organ transplantation, but is also used in dermatology and rheumatology. Um, and it affects the T cells and B cells. And, and, it, um, and that's how it basically inhibits repair of UV cellular damage to increase skin cancer risk. Um, mycophenolate tends to be replacing azathioprine in um, drug therapies, and it does not confer um, the same sort of increased risk that azathioprine has. So that's kind of a um, uh, something to kind of make a mental note of is that if your patient has a, has a history of being on the medication in the past or is currently on the medication, this could um, make them um, an, at increased risk to make skin cancer in the future. So why, how does prednisone um, affect the, the medication? It, it in, uh, inhibits macrophages from infiltrating a site of inflammation. So macrophages, as we remember, those would um, eat up cancer cells. So if macrophages can't get to the area, if there's less macrophages in general, that person um, is going to be at risk for development of skin cancer. Typically, when we're talking about prednisone, we're thinking about um, not a short amount of, of time that they're on it. We're really talking about um, 20 milligrams or higher um, for more than, more than several weeks uh, with regards to the prednisone. And sometimes these people, especially when they go into rejection, they're um, given high doses of prednisone. So it's important to watch them in the weeks and months after they have had these episodes because that um, increased dose of the prednisone can really um, make them grow more skin cancer in the months after they have had these high dose infusions. Also, uh, an important kind of side note is um, the medication Gelinia that we use to treat multiple sclerosis, that blocks the capacity of lymphocytes to enter the lymph node, um, and it reduces the number of T cells and also natural killer cells. And so that medicine can also confer an increased risk for people to make skin cancer. So um, think about that medicine when you're looking at the medication history as far as high risk medications for development of skin cancer. 
Um, voriconazole is another medicine that's a high-risk medicine. It is an antifungal that's used to treat aspergillus infections or other invasive fungal infections. And it is known to um, give people a phototoxic reaction so they get red um, while they're taking the medicine. And if they get that phototoxic reaction, they're almost certainly going to make a skin cancer um, in the time following that, um, that exposure. Important to note with this medication, there are alternatives, there are newer medications that um, are options um, for treatment of these uh, fungal infections that you can recommend to the person that's treating their fungal infections. Um, Asuvaconazole, um, we know potentially might be a little bit less, in, less effective um, in treating the fungal infections, but posaconazole is also an option as well. Um, for, and these, neither of these antifungals, azoles, has the same effect as far as um, phototoxicity or risk for skin cancer. This medication used to treat myelodysplasia and polycythemia also has been known to make aggressive and eruptive SCCs. We had a patient um, who, was, who had CLL, who was treated with this for two years, and she presented with this less than, so seven by 10 millimeter squamous cell carcinoma on the lip. When she went for Mohs, um, this was the extent of the active area. And as you can see, it was um, moderate to poorly differentiated and with perineural invasion into the muscle. Thankfully, the lip is a very forgiving area, but we did recommend that she have um, radiation therapy for this. Um, because as you would note, it was a high-risk lesion. So it had the perineural invasion and it was in a high-risk area. And it, um, let's go back here. And it was moderately, moderate to poorly differentiated. So the important thing in these patients is to screen them early and often. There are no great guidelines for screening CLL patients. So we, I would encourage us to look at the um, International Skin Cancer Collaborative, um, ITSI, that, that you can become a member of online. Um, and it put out these recommendations for the organ transplant patient. So basically we can work through them. If you have had a transplant and you're being seen, um, if you have no history of skin cancer, you don't have any actinic damage, um, no history of um, precancerous or malignant melanomas, then you're seen once a year. If you have a history of skin cancer, actinic damage, um, actinic keratosis or malignant melanoma, you're seen every three to six months. If you've made numerous squamous cell carcinomas or keratoacanthomas, they want us to see people um, and follow them every three months. Um, if you've made a high-risk squamous cell, three months. If you've made a post-transplant melanoma, then every three months for two years, and then every six months. And then if you have a made a metastatic squamous cell carcinoma or metastatic melanoma, every one to two months. So I would encourage us to follow these guidelines for a CLL patient as well, if they fit in, um, in one of these to kind of follow them um, until we get screening guidelines for CLL patients as well. 
it's important to educate patients that they've been exposed to a high-risk medication or that they um, need to be protecting themselves from the sun and monitoring their skin for development of skin cancer. Um, we know um, from, from this study that skin cancer education increased patients' uh, knowledge and also encouraged them to use sun protective behaviors. So educating patients actually does make a difference and, and letting them know you were on a high-risk medication, so you need to protect yourself from the sun. And if you see anything that looks concerning, you need to come see us sooner rather than later. So this is a reminder again about the fact that um, these patients, they don't respond in the way that a normal immune system would respond. Any UV damage is going to damage their DNA and lead to mutations and malignant transformation. So we know that actinic keratoses, actinic keratoses signify actinic damage and they're a precursor of squamous cell carcinoma. But in this patient population, they tend to go more um, regularly to develop a squamous cell carcinoma. So you can think about these as patients you're gonna to need to monitor more regularly and treat this field cancerization more aggressively. So what are we doing to treat these, uh, this precancerous damage? So we like to recommend that patients take vitamin B3. Another synonym is niacinamide or nicotinamide. So basically, this has been shown to reduce the rate of new non-melanoma skin cancer by 23% and the number of new actinic keratoses. I know that we've all um, dreaded this um, from, um, from organic chemistry, but the Krebs cycle has come back to haunt us again. <laughs> so basically how this medication or this vitamin works is it prevents ATP depletion. So it gives us actually, because there's, there's not as much ATP being taken away, there's more ATP in the system to boost cellular energy to enhance DNA repair. Um, so it is protective against UV radiation. Um, we recommend that these patients use 500 milligrams twice a day, and we recommend the Nature's Way brand because that is the brand that was used in this study um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, it's about 6 to $7 for the bottle, and, and it's typically generally well tolerated by people. Also, we are aggressively treating any of their actinic damage, so field cancerization, um, with 5-fluorouracil or amiquimod. Um, those are typically the ones that I reach for. I typically reach for the 5-fluorouracil most commonly because um, it can cover a, a, a large surface area. Um, I, this is typically how I'm using it, so the 5% twice a day. Um, for three weeks and then a week off and then again twice a day for three weeks. Um, amiquimod, sometimes I have a tendency to not use this on the face because I've had a couple of patients have the vitilaginous-like permanent hypopigmentation that can happen um, when I've used it for genital verruca, so I tend not to use it on the face in patients. Um, so this is a patient during their week of therapy, um, during their uh, weeks of therapy, and this is the person on their week off from therapy um, before they've restarted. Um, sometimes I'm having to do this in the summertime in my transplant patients, but typically I try to do it right in the cooler months 
um, especially I'm beaming to you from Texas, so it can be pretty hot here and itchy and uncomfortable. Um, but also aggressive Vaseline emolliation has been a good tool. Um, I have people put the Vaseline in the refrigerator so they can put it on cool. And that's a good tool to help get off a lot of this scaling so that people um, are able to tolerate the medication better. Also, there's the option um, for you to compound 5-fluorouracil with calcipatrion ointment and use it for a shorter duration. An important thing I tell people is not that it's going to be easier um, or less painful for them. I say it's going to be a shorter duration because I have had people have a pretty robust reaction to the combination that um, uh, this combination, just the same as the just plain 5-fluorouracil. But this would be an alternative for people that aren't going to do it uh, for very long, um, that are that want a shorter course. So the five fluorouracil compounded with um, calcipatrion ointment twice a day for four days would be a good option. We're also using photodynamic therapy, um, cryotherapy, um, and these other options to treat actinic damage. But the majority of times I like to use the uh, topical chemotherapy. Like I said, my favorite is the five fluorouracil for the management of actinic damage in these patients. And again, I'm seeing them um, probably every three months. So it may be a couple times a year that we need to do this. Um, it just depends on the amount of field cancerization that they have and sort of how quickly it recurs after they are off of their topical chemotherapy. The other thing that we do sometimes in patients is we do chemotherapy wraps, where basically we prescribe them a tube of fluorouracil. We request them to bring it into their next visit. Um, we, if they have these hyperkeratotic areas, we would anesthetize and then curette um, and hypercate the hyperkeratotic areas, and then you apply fluorouracil either to the whole area. Um, so the pictures I have, I'm doing the foot, but you could do an upper extremity, uh, so a forearm or um, uh, a shin and um, apply the whole, the topical um, all over the area. Or as you've seen here, as I put just in the hyperkeratotic, where I've put the hyperkeratotic, um, over the hyperkeratotic areas. And then you, so you apply the 5-fluorouracil to these areas, and then you wrap as if you were doing an Unaboot. Um, I put Vaseline impregnated gauze, and then my nurse puts the zinc oxide wrap, and then the Curlex gauze, and then the Coban. Um, you put this on, typically I would do it on a Monday, and my patient would take it off on Friday. They have the weekend off, and then we'd, they'd come back to see me on the next Monday. So we might apply it weekly for three to eight weeks. Um, and again, I'm doing it on the foot here, but um, you could do it on the forearms um, or the anterior shin. Um, important to note, you can do it with or without the um, curetting the hyperkeratotic areas. And if you are curetting um, the hyperkeratotic areas, the person may need um, prescribed by your supervising physician um, pain medication because it can be extremely painful when you um, add these two techniques together and you're curetting and then you're doing the um, essentially occlusion of the 5-fluorouracil. 
but this is a good option for aggressively treating an area, typically the forearms or the lower legs, um, with that has multiple of these uh, hyperkeratotic actinic keratoses. It's also important to be reviewing and tracking skin cancer history over time. So when I'm seeing the patients, if they're developing um, squamous cells at an increased rate, then I'm thinking about potentially do we need to be discussing with their um, prescriber of their immunosuppression, um, lowering their immunosuppression, or do we need to be thinking about um, starting um, another medication potentially um, like seriotane for um, prophylaxis of them making additional squamous cell carcinomas. So there are a couple of medications like I just alluded to that can slow the rate of non-melanoma skin cancer development. So seriotane, acetretin, we use this medication um, for psoriasis. Um, and then there's also a medication, um, oral calcipatrione, which is basically the prodrug of 5-fluorouracil. So this is the medication that they use um, for uh, colon cancer and breast cancer infusions, um, but this is an oral pill uh, that causes basically death of those rapidly dividing cells. So we know with seriotane, we use it for psoriasis. Um, typically, my experience in using this medication is um, you, you give it to the patient and, and what they tolerate is basically weight-based. Um, so I start them off at 10 milligrams. Um, we're we'll talk about the labs that you check, but we're, we're monitoring them, their labs. Um, I might see them back in a month, and then I'm typically getting them, trying to get them up to a dose of 20 milligrams uh, to see, to hopefully that they can tolerate that. And that's gonna be the clinically effective dose typically for patients. Um, over the, it takes about two to three months for starting that dose, but you're going to notice that they make significantly less squamous cell carcinomas while they are on the medication. The issue is if they have to, if they don't tolerate the medication and they need to come off of the medication, there is a rebound um, in them making these squamous cell carcinomas after you stop the medication. So again, it takes a couple of months um, for those new rebound lesions to develop, but you need to be kind of aware that if you need to stop the patient, they will uh, they they will make these squamous cell carcinomas at the same rate that they did before you started the medication. So the tough thing with this medication is the tolerability of the medication. It, it causes the skin texture to change so that, such that it kind of becomes sticky. Um, uh, but the nice thing is these hyperkeratotic lesions scale off and peel, kind of flake off. Um, they can have alopecia, they can have really dry um, eyes, dry skin. Um, you can uh, cause an entropion where the eye, um, or ectropion where the eyelids kind of flip up. Um, chelitis, photosensitivity, uh, dyslipidemia. Um, so it's important to think about those and to be monitoring patients' um, triglycerides because they can have um, cardiovascular disease already because they're on prednisone after their transplant. So it's important to kind of work with, um, continue to monitor their labs. Um, typically, we're, I'm doing a CBC and CMP um, and uh, lipids while they're on 
the medication about starting out about every uh, four to eight weeks. Um, oral capsidabine um, is a medication that I will send um, the patient to a medical oncologist for evaluation of them starting this medicine. And my threshold for doing that will be if the patient is making greater than six squamous cells. So let's go back here. So greater than six squamous cells per year, then I'm thinking, um, do they need to potentially be sent to medical oncology for evaluation for potentially starting something like oral capsidabine. So this is chemotherapy. So the side effects of fatigue, diarrhea, oral ulcers, hand and foot syndrome, um, this is an, an intensive medication for patients to be on, but um, it's typically cycled. So given in three week cycles, two weeks on, one week off. And the good thing is we haven't seen a rebound effect with discontinuation of this medication like we have with seriotin. So certainly this, um, this medication would need to be prescribed by a medical oncologist who was familiar with the medication, um, but it's reasonable to think about if someone's making um, more than six invasive squamous cell carcinomas per year um, because we're trying to prevent them from making a metastatic squamous cell carcinoma. So there's interesting kind of information out there about the HPV vaccine and uh, potentially, uh, obviously this is just two patients, but that had a reduction in the rate of skin cancers that they made after they got the HPV vaccine. I think an important thing to think about is any of your patients who happen to fall in that window, now that the HPV vaccine has been indicated up to age 45, anyone that was perhaps too old to get the HPV vaccine, um, when they were the appropriate age, but now is falls in that window, especially potentially before they become immunosuppressed, reasonable to remind patients to get their HPV vaccine. Um, like I said, insurance will cover it if they're less than 45 years old. So we know that PD-1 inhibitors treat metastatic cancer, um, metastatic squamous cell carcinoma but it has not been regularly used for treatment of metastatic cancer in the organ transplant recipients due to concern for organ rejection. Um, so there's, there's basically limited options for these patients once they get a metastatic squamous cell carcinoma. So that's why it's so important to treat patients at the pre-cancer and then treat their, aggressively treat their skin cancer uh, because if it metastasizes, there are very limited options for treatment of these patients. Um, of note, there's, there is emerging study and research in this field of using PD-1 inhibitors to treat metastatic skin cancer in the organ transplant patient, but early, um, early utilizations of this for this purpose have, um, have resulted in um, organ loss for these patients. So the International um, Skin Cancer Collaborative has suggested wait times for transplantation after diagnosis of certain um, skin cancers. So it's important to note you can use the source here. Uh, if you have a question, the patient is possibly 
um, going to get a transplant and they need to know, you know, they've had a skin cancer, can we transplant the patient? You can kind of work through the graph here and see, you know, if, if they have made a melanoma in situ that was wide local, treated with wide local excision, there is no wait necessary, but follow-up would be post-transplantation every three months. So you can kind of work through the graph and that will help you kind of know um, from an evidence-based source a good suggested wait time for transplantation, if you're ever asked that. Also important to note that there is a risk of malignancy that's, that's not just skin cancer um, in this population. So 23% of breast cancers um, recur af after transplantation in the kidney transplant population. And then mortality was approaching 70% in these patients. So um, the, the two cancers that we've kind of found uh, to be increased in this population are breast and colon. Um, so it's important for people to be getting their um, recommended screening for monitoring of these uh, based on their age. Um, so that's an important note that we can just be kind of treating our patients holistically if they've had a history of breast cancer or if they are of the appropriate age that they need to have a mammogram or if a screening test for colon cancer, important for them to recommend going back to their PCPs and getting the appropriate um, age appropriate cancer screenings. So this is a slide just showing um, not just the organ transplant population, but also patients with CLL made other types of, of cancer. Far and away, uh, non-melanoma skin cancer was the most common diagnosis, um, but they also had risk of prostate, breast, lung, um, intestinal tract cancers. So it's important to just think about the fact that these patients, again, can make um, increased risk of, of cancer, not just skin cancer. So I wanna end with a case study that just kind of um, encapsulates a lot of the salient points of the talk. So we had a patient, um, we'll call him Mr. M. He was a 57 year old Caucasian male who needed a bilateral lung transplant for pulmonary fibrosis. So we saw him in 2014 and did his pre-lung transplant evaluation. He had no history of skin cancer. He had a history of pre-cancer, so actinic keratosis. Um, he had his transplant a month later and he was put on um, azathioprine, prednisone, and tacrolimus. So he, three months later, or he, um, a couple years later, we saw him in clinic for for redness that actually was due to uh, him being treated with voriconazole for 1.5 years for an aspergillus infection. The tough thing is in these lung transplant patients, they, they're very prone to infections and then it can take a while for them to clear the infection. So he got a phototoxic reaction to voriconazole. Uh, he was seen a couple months after that in the clinic and he had an actinic keratosis that was diagnosed and treated. And then so four months later, he appears to clinic and um, an astute PA colleague of mine um, sees this spot and biopsies, biopsies it, which I will say um, is a very, you know, almost right clinically insignificant spot there. And that ended up being a moderately differentiated squamous cell carcinoma. That was treated a month later with Mohs with negative margins. 
And then two months later, he presented with two new nodules that were found on biopsy to be recurrent, moderately differentiated squamous cell carcinoma. He was referred to ENT for a lymph node evaluation, and he was found to have two positive parotid lymph nodes. So he, um, we treated these with Mohs, and then he got local radiation therapy. And then four months later, so that you can see the Mohs scars. So four months later, he was hospitalized for shortness of breath, and he had a new visible mass on the cheek and the neck, and he was found to have, that was found to be recurrent SCC, and then MRI showed that he had um, <clears throat> masses on the parotid and the mandible, and um, on CT he had visible lymph nodes. Um, he had a, an FNA of his, the area, some areas in the lung that were found to be metastatic squamous cell carcinoma, and um, surgery was not deemed to be an option, and palliative chemotherapy was recommended. So this patient has a lot of the characteristics that we talked about in the talk. He was a white gentleman over the age of 50 who had had a lung transplant. Um, he started out, he only had a history of actinic keratosis. Um, he had a phototoxic reaction to voriconazole, and then he quickly developed these aggressive um, squamous cell carcinomas that were on clinical appearance very, um, they were clinically um, not as aggressive appearing as they were on pathology. So skin cancer, right, we all know it's typically slower growing. However, in the immunosuppressed patients, these tend to develop more rapidly within weeks or months. So the patients need to be screened and monitored more closely. Um, it can also be more aggressive um, more invasive, harder to treat, and more likely to recur and to metastasize. Um, patients' risk will increase over time. So they may, as I've said before, they may be seeing their primary um, uh, person that's prescribed them the immunosuppression less frequently, but they may need to be seeing dermatology more frequently to assess and, and monitor their risk for making skin cancer. Um, also, the longer the patient is taking the immunosuppressants, the greater their risk for making non-melanoma skin cancer. So these are my colleagues, the most surgeons that I work with um, in the high-risk skin cancer transplant clinic that we have at UC Southwestern. Um, this is a picture of my dad, and he is um, made an appearance on the slides because he helped me. Uh, put these slides into, into this digital format so that I could be uh, lecturing to you guys today. And I'd be happy now to take some um, questions in the live chat. Um, and I really appreciate your time and all the hard work that, that you do caring, caring for your patients during this time. Thanks.